Well, hello there, and big congratulations. Yeah, you've won a prize. That's right. And the prize is that you get to listen to this latest episode of the Bookbound podcast. Lucky you. Also, lucky me. I'm quite excited. It's Georgie Codd here, and it's my pleasure to be introducing a conversation between the authors Paul Mendes and Niven Govindan, hosted by Octavia Bright, the co-host of the Literary Friction podcast. Niven and Paul have plenty in common, but the main one? Their latest books came out not too long ago. Paul's, his debut, Rainbow Milk, and Niven's book number five, This Brutal House. Let's join them as they talk through their work, plus queerness, representation and publication. Oh, and I should tell you, there are a few swear words in here, so there you go. Over to Niven, who's going to start with a summary of his latest work. It's a novel set in New York against the backdrop of the voguing slash ball community there. And the, I suppose, in a nutshell, it's essentially the story of a protest um, started by the mothers of the legendary voguing houses in New York, who basically one day decide to start a silent protest on the steps of City Hall with the children from their voguing houses. And what they're protesting about is the disappearances of um, kids from their voguing houses over the years through homophobic, transphobic violence, structural inequality, poverty, all that stuff and the city never really doing anything about it. And they've tried through various means over the years, through um, political lobbying, through protesting, through rioting, and nothing's ever really worked. And they decide one day um, that actually just to sit on the steps of City Hall en masse silently um, in an act of protest over several days is going to get them what they want. And the novel basically follows the story of this protest um, from its origins to the sort of microcosm of it um, as it sort of reaches a conclusion. And what I was trying to do with the book is really that I wanted to write a novel of queer protest, um, queer POC protest, and really to look at um, a community. And also it's written, half of the novel is written, narrated by the mothers, and they use, I use we, so it's a collective voice, so they're not named. And what I'm trying to do is write a fictional um oral history and sort of give record to um a community's um collective um trauma resilience determination to find answers and to stand up for their community yeah that i want to get into this in more detail in a minute but that plural voice is so powerful um and so like i don't know it seems so vital to the what you're exploring and the fact that kind of queer communities have to build their own families in order to find yeah, for sure. friends, you know, which is also something that comes up a bit in Rainbow Milk, but in quite a different way. So Paul, could you introduce your novel, please? Um, yeah, I just want to pick up on your point there, Niven, on um, a fictional oral history, um, because Rainbow Milk is written from two points of view. Uh, the first is, uh, it comprises the first sort of 50 pages of the novel. Um, and is in the first person um, dialectical voice of Norman Alonso, who's a Jamaican immigrant to um, Great Britain, uh, who settles in the black country in uh, 1959, he's speaking anyway. Uh, he moved in 1956 with his wife, who was pregnant at the time. Um, and 
sort of by the time we are speaking to him um, in July 1959, he's the father of two children. Um, he's suffering from terrible migraine headaches and is going blind. Um, and he's at home when he should be at work. He's at home looking after his two children. His wife is out working. Um, and he sort of creates the world of the black country in those days um, of, you know, post Notting Hill riots of, um, you know, neo-fascism, the days of Oswald Mosley and his rhetoric, um, the days of um, KBW, Cape Britain White being sprayed onto black people's houses. Um, and he is a tall, big man, a former boxer who is left feeling extremely vulnerable. Um, so he, in some ways is based on um, my grandfather, my paternal grandfather, um, of whom I knew very, very, very little. And I just sort of used these tiny little scraps of information that I had about him and created a narrative around him as a means of, as you say, Niven, sort of reclaiming um, a history uh, for these people because, you know, the Windrush generation, as we know them, are dying. You know, the Windrush first docked in 1948, which is over 70 years ago now. So. Um, it's very, very important this that this generation and future generations really sort of keep that voice alive because of what we've seen happening socially yeah, sure. over the last three years, particularly. Um, so I started with that point of view and then moved on to um, a character called Jesse, who we meet at the age of 19 in 2002, um, who is from a Jehovah's Witness sort of mixed race family. He's black, but his mother married a white man. Um, when he was two years old um, and they raised him as a Jehovah's Witness um, and he finds himself as a teenager very much conflicted between his faith and his responsibility to his congregation and his burgeoning sense of responsibility to himself to sort of live his own truth and so we find him in London um, working as a sex worker, having left his family and his religion behind. Um, and we sort of watch him grow and it sort of becomes a coming of age story from there. And then eventually we see how the two points of view resolve. Yeah, so it's a novel that spans a lot of voices and a lot of different experiences, right? Like I feel like Rainbow Milk has, it's a very full population, right? Of the people that Jesse encounters and tracing that link between you know, you end up in 2016, don't you? So it's a really mm. powerfully drawn link between the the Windrush, kind of the arrival of the Windrush generation and then contemporary young black queer experience, I suppose. Yeah. Um, I mean, both of you have written novels that are, I, I mean, I, I think of them as documents of very sort of fundamental queer history. And as you said, Niven, you know, POC queer history, like race is totally vital to both of, of the stories that you're telling. Um, and I think with when it comes to, to ball culture, like, I don't know, my first encounter with it was through the documentary Paris is Burning, like a lot of people. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously since then there's been the TV show Pose and there's that, yeah. the, I don't know what it is, the, the reality thing with Jimmy Ledger Mill that was, there was Yeah, which the which is coming out later this year, I think. They're too, are they filming it? And they're filming it now, aren't they? I which sounds so. amazing. I know people were moaning about it, but um, they've got some really cool creative people from that cu the current ball scene now. So it feels totally authentic. And I don't think people should judge it until we actually see what it is. I'm really excited to see it. Yeah, absolutely. Agreed. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, that, that's a culture that, 
definitely from um from watching the movies is so kind of visual and physical it's all about dance mm. and costume and everything so you know how did you feel about putting it down in words it must have been quite a challenging thing to approach to think I'm going to encapsulate it on the page um well yes and no in the sense that I'd been thinking about writing a a novel that was something to do with ball culture for maybe like over a decade. I think in the mid early noughties, I wrote a short story between novels that was for a tiny little magazine in Italy. And it was, it was about the sort of twilight era of the voguing houses before everything really imploded and sort of they, you know, that scene that, that really shone brightly in the sort of global consciousness and within queer consciousness. Um, you know, for about, for what, five years or so, and then it, it went back underground. And I wrote a story about a mother from one of those great houses sort of lamenting the, 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 the fall, you know, she was, and she was living that kind of fall. And when I, before it was published, I remember an editor of a magazine saying to me, are you writing a novel about balls? Because I would really read it. And it was sort of like a little light bulb moment. And I just sort of tucked it away and was working on other novels. And then when I finished my fourth novel, which was a book about um, portrait painting, um, I just felt actually I really want to write a book about balls now, but what I didn't want to do was write a primer about voguing because, you know, Paris is Burning really for me still is the most perfect piece of art that's been made about that scene. And I wanted to write something that felt totally immersive and wasn't a, um, you know, it, it just wasn't a primer for um, non-queer people to what that scene was, you know. Um, so it was, it, and also when I realised that, I knew sort of running parallel that I wanted to write a novel that was based on a collective voice that I really wanted to explore the idea of writing an unwritten um, social history of, you know, a group of people. Um, so it, it just came from, it, it was just very, I can't really explain, it was just very natural and it came from there. And it was really about, once I had the mother's voice, I kind of knew where I was going. I just sort of ran with it. And the other thing I didn't want to do at all was write about, it's a novel set within Voguing, but I don't want to write about Voguing. Does that make sense? So yeah. I wasn't going to write chapters where they go to a Vogue ball and, and adventures happen. You know, that just isn't what I'm interested in at all. I'm interested in the integrity of those people within their environment, but outside of the environment. So they've created the Vogue balls, but they're living within, you know, it's a novel about a city and the benevolence of the city and the city as a parent and what the city gives or doesn't give you and the rights of, you know, what a city should be giving the people who live within it. Um, so it, it comes from all those things. And as I was writing it, I knew very quickly as the, the mother's voice came on, that it was going to be a novel of voices. So, so being able to use different voices, there's a character called Teddy, who's one of the found children who ends up becoming the mother's protector, the Vogue caller, um, and I use the vocaler really, A, because I love the wordplay of a vocaler in Vogue Balls because I love the energy of it. I love the wordplay. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a big correlation to a vocaler and, and, and how MCs work in hip hop. Um, so I love all those things. And it really gives you what the, the power of, of what voguing is. But it's used in the, the actual vocaler chapters are used in quite a political way to actually reinforcing, you know, queer power basically. Um, and I've, I've just had really, I'm really fascinated by the reactions when I, I get from readers when they read those chapters in particular. So the one chapter is called um, Vogue Caller 1, which is category is, which is a Vogue Caller calling out ball categories. 
Um, and some are very obvious, you know, first time in drags, you know, femoral, you know, all that stuff. And then it just becomes more political as it goes on. And you really feel the power of actually what walking in those categories means as a queer person of colour within that setup. I find that really powerful. And some people love that and some people are really perplexed by that. And then the other chapter of the of the vocal was just, uh, you know, several pages with the vocal of telling people to walk the balls, which, you know, again, it's a very powerful thing. And I think you are, you know, you either get it or you don't. And it, again, it kind of perplexed a lot of people. But it, it's the it's the truth of what the culture of what that culture is and what you know what it kind of meant to me. So um, it was it. I didn't I didn't I didn't feel that I was held back by doing it. I just really kind of threw myself into it. I just wanted to do it, you know, in the best way that I knew that felt sort of true to me. I guess. I think that's what's so powerful about it, though, because, like you said, you know, you're not setting out to write a primer for a curious straight person who wants to mm. know more about it you're you're throwing your reader in into the mix and just being like well it's sink or swim buddy it's kind of up to you and also it, it's it's challenging and I think of this a lot when I write especially the more I write books is about challenging the notion and this only really comes from when you look outside of yourself and you go to literary festivals and talk about your books with other people which is as a writer of colour you're constantly being told that your book is other and your point of view is other. And the whole point of writing books where you're drawing three-dimensional characters is in your own narrative, you're not other. You're the most central person in your own narrative. So when you write a story with that amount of um, conviction without a primer, it can unsettle people because they're like, well, no, well, normally if I read a book like this, something would there will be someone to hold my hand and explain to me what's going on. And that's not really my job. Yeah. <laughs> you know, a lot of what you bring to um, a book as a reader, I've, I, I, I've learned a lot from just um, getting, you know, publishing books and seeing how people respond to books is you bring your own baggage as a reader to every novel you write, every novel you read. And it's, it's a summation of, you know, your life history, your expectations, where you come, you know, everything, your, your, the accumulation of your life experience comes when, you know, is present when you read a book. So what, what, you, what, what, is, what is the lack is to do with, you know, to do with all those things. And that's not, that's not up to me. <laughs> no, God, no. Well, also the thing I found with the, the vocaler sections, it reminded me um, something that the novelist, well, poet and novelist Ocean Vuong said, when I interviewed him a while ago for the podcast I do, where he spoke about um, what, he basically asked, wanted to ask the question of his own writing, what would happen if your novel collapsed on itself? And we were talking about kind of prose descending into poetry as mm. becoming a kind of breakdown of form that is unforgiving of the reader and kind of queer in itself because it rejects the traditional form, formalism of the novel in a way that's really exciting. And I found that reading this brutal house very much but then um paul you know your your well your novel is is it in a completely different universe in that it's much more realist and i know that you know you're as you were saying your kind of main protagonist jesse is raised as a jehovah's witness which i know that you were also and that there's um, a map between your experience and jesse's experience that overlaps quite a lot and then not in other places um and I was struck by this line, if he had a computer, Jesse thought, and wasn't a Jehovah's Witness, he would write a book about his childhood. Jehovah's Witnesses don't write books. 
um, which when you know your own personal history really, really stands out. Um, and later you have a line where you say that Jesse realizes he could write to make sense of everything that had happened to him. Um, so I wanted to ask you, you know, did you find the same in writing this book? Um, yes, um, very much so. And Rainbow Milk came about from years and years of um, using my laptop as a shrink. <laughs> um, and just sort of writing about myself and how I felt and just sort of to keep tabs on myself. I guess the period that I wanted to write about most and that was the reason for the book in the first place um, was to chart um, my life and the decisions I'd made and the sort of situations I've been put in um, between being a devout baptized Jehovah's Witness at 17 with a very sort of set future um, to become an elder, to marry, to have children, to do all of that. Um, and then finding myself at the age of 22 uh, in London, away from family um, at Christmas, um, having been sort of, having gone through sexual assault um, and not having any idea of what my future was supposed to be. Um, so it was at that point that I very much realized that um, writing was the only way that I was going to ever explain that, just to sort of cut things up into sort of small little thoughts um, that would help me to almost create a future for myself. Because, you know, once you lose your center of gravity being religion, you have nothing. So um, I just had to sort of take refuge in writing. Um, and as things progressed over the years, I was able to eventually find the distance. Um, and it was really Charmaine Lovegrove who challenged me to, to write a novel because that's the ultimate sort of um, distance really is to write fiction. Um, because, you know, it's one thing trying to remember everything that happened uh, 15 years ago and remember who you were and think the thoughts of a 19, 20, 21 year old. Um, but it's quite another to step away from it, to write in third person and to actually create characters and create interior spaces and um, create, uh, maybe have everything that happened to me happen to him, but just with different people, different voices, different dialogue, different clothes, different music, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it became a creative challenge and one that's very much rooted in realist aesthetics. Um, but one that I could also use to um, to explain things to myself and to hopefully pass on um, a story that others can benefit from. The, the theme of art taking the place of religion is something that comes through in the book really strongly. Um, and there's a lovely scene where one of your characters, where Jesse ends up going to the Tate Modern when he's missing his... Um, um, what is it called? The Kingdom um, Hall. Kingdom Hall, thank you, sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah, when he's missing the Kingdom Hall. And and I was thinking about how, yeah, the, the, the space the book occupied for you as the writer perhaps fulfilled a similar role. I don't know if it was necessarily as direct as that, but like, do you believe that art can replace faith in a way that's less judgmental, maybe less kind of exclusionary? Uh, yeah, definitely, um, because it's on your terms and you're in control 
um, and you go whenever you want to. It's not that you have to be at the Kingdom Hall at, on a Thursday at seven o'clock anymore, or at Sunday on Sunday morning at ten o'clock. You don't have to go out knocking doors anymore. But what you can do is you can get to your laptop and um, just be in control of your own space, be in control of your own environment, and um, try to figure things out for yourself rather than continue to be sort of um, continue to subscribe to this sort of um, doctrine that sort of came before you and that your parents sort of brought you up in that you had no real sort of say in whatsoever. It is about choice, I think, writing and um, engaging with art um, because art, I suppose, is sort of man's way of figuring out who he is and what his sort of power is and what his sort of visions are um, that are nothing to do with God. I'm sorry if there are any sort of evangelical Christians out there watching who might disagree with me, <laughs> but um, I, I do think that um, it is within all of our power to sort of engage creatively, to, um, to think about who we are and what our place is in the world. Um, and basically, I don't know, maybe even sort of try to create a path for ourselves to, to, to follow that doesn't necessarily end up with Armageddon and with, you know, 95% of the people on the planet dying just because they don't worship Jehovah, which is the thing that I couldn't get my head around because there were just so many nice people out there who I met <laughs> after I left the witnesses. And I thought, what? All these people are supposed to be dying at Armageddon and they're just really nice people and they just helped me with something. And, you know, um, in fact, I saw more love outside the organization once I'd left than I'd seen within. So I was just very messed up about the idea of, of Armageddon and the apocalypse. And I needed to do something to sort of take myself away from all of that. And, but then actually being in a physical space um, is what I missed, I suppose, when I did move to London, was was out of the organisation. So going to the Tate Modern, that was my sanctuary. I loved to just go and sit in the Rothko room and contemplate. I was absolutely devastated when, um, I mean, I love Agnes Martin, but do you remember for a couple of years, it was the Agnes Martin room. <laughs> <laughs> I was so devastated because it just wasn't the same. <laughs> it was like all white and like, you know, beautiful sort of pastels and candy colors. I was like, no, I need the dark. I need the intense reds. I need to sort of like throw myself into this bloody canvas and sort of scream and listen to Joy Division. Um, but <laughs> <They're> really, <laughs> those passages were really powerful. Thank you. Yeah, they really were. And it got me thinking, even just listening to you now, you know, what you're partly what you're talking about is also the ritual, right? Like yeah. the ritual spaces that faith offers or religious mm. spaces offer yeah. when you are no longer welcome in, in those spaces for whatever reason that might be. Yeah. Um, you know, you need to find alternative ones. And I think that's something that comes through in your book, Niven, a lot as well, because there's a strand to your narrative that's also exploring the complexity of holding faith and queerness alongside one another because the major yeah very much so yeah don't don't welcome queerness in their spaces but at the same time when you have a practice of faith how do you cope with the the kind of the loss of it and the way that the mothers relate to that is again it's incredibly powerful but I was thinking about this with both of your books that like how do queer artists and I mean queer people in general but like the role of art of art by queer people can kind of occupy a, a sort of space of almost faith for the community. I don't know if that makes sense to you. I haven't explained that very clearly, but. 
you know, offering offering places, even if it's just the, the space of ideas for communion for people to come together. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think, I think, when I think to how I grew up and discovered um, queer culture, that was, you know, that was the sanctuary. You know, jumping from one book to another, to, you know, from discovering James Baldwin as a kid to Hubert Selby Jr. reading, you know, Pat Califia, Kathy Acker, Dennis Cooper. Um, Alan Hollinghurst, Adam Mars Jones, literally, you know, jumping from one writer to one writer, but feeling a the sanctuary of books and actually discovering um, the space that queer culture occupies, not only within queer culture but the wider queer culture through books and and through films and through art. That's really powerful when you're trying to work out who you are and where your people are and what you can contribute and how you can be part of that culture. Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's, well, James Baldwin actually features in Rainbow Milk. Jesse reads James Baldwin and um, mm. it's quite a, a sort of important moment for him encountering that those texts, right? Oh. Um, and I wanted to ask you both actually, but never you sort of just answered this question, but Paul, was Baldwin very important for you when you were, re you know, discovering who you were and, and reading, finding queer literature? I mean, I didn't really, know who James Baldwin was properly until I was a bit older sort of maybe even I mean I'm 30 almost 38 now but maybe when I was 30 that was the first time I'd read Giovanni's Room in reality the first Baldwin novel I read was Tell Me How Long the Train's Been Gone I love I that 20. <laughs> that's I think that's my favorite that's really really my favorite I really, really <laughs> love that book. I haven't read it since I've got it on the shelf I really need to read it over the next I reread it a few years ago it's really? still phenomenal it's very theatrical it's a real actor's kind of novel well it got terrible um, reviews at the time I saw um yeah. Mario Puzo read a review of it in the New York Times contemporaneously and just sort of trashed it completely they all trashed him after yeah another, this was the first one after another country and he really got a kicking for for it but I've got a really soft spot for it I mean it's very overblown and it's 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 like the third album after a massive <laughs> successful you really feel it because he, you know he talks about him traveling through you know being a black man traveling through Europe um, yeah. and being famous. Mm. And you really feel that he put himself into, into that, um, into those characters. But yeah, I've got a real, I really love that book. Yeah, I loved it as well, for all I remember of it. But um, what, stick, what stuck in my mind and what sort of influenced me at the time, it was just before I came out, actually. Um, I was 20, I was living in Kent um, in a house show of other students um and it was the first book I read in which there was a, a gay black character or a bisexual black character and he had an affair with this um black um black panther sort of figure or a sort of um a black radical anyway and to me it was just a massive revelation because I'd never seen any images or heard at all like growing up sort of very sheltered Jehovah's Witness in the black country I'd never ever thought that two black men could be in a relationship <laughs> I mean it just sounds silly but like you know if you don't see it you don't know especially yeah, when you're absolutely. that age and when you're you know growing up in a religion where um any sort of non-heterosexual heteronormative activity is completely anathema um, so it had a, a real sort of impact on me. Um, 
but I'd also like to sort of like pair him with Steve McQueen, who we were also mentioning mm. a little bit, um, because in Rainbow Milk, I've sort of had Jesse's sort of see Bear, the film Bear um, at the Tate Modern, which it actually was on display during that time in the permanent mm. collection. Um, but I first saw that at the Centre Pompidou in Paris. Um, and again, it, and this was in 2007. And again, I'd just never sort of seen this kind of beauty on a screen that was comprised of two queer, well, sorry, not queer, but two black men anyway, um, engaged in physical contact, naked, all of that. The like, I just never, exactly. Yeah. I've seen that before. Yeah, and like, yeah. you know, really beautifully shot and like blue light sort of bouncing off their beautiful black skin. Like, I'd, I'd just never seen anything like that before. It was so, amazing. I've always had this, and this is where there's sort of some of the intersectionality, I suppose, in Jesse's um, story and character comes in because not only does he have pressure to be, to conform to black masculine um, almost stereotypes, um, there's also the idea of him being gay. And I, I would use the word gay even at that time in the sort of mid 2000s more than queer because Jesse just doesn't come from that world and he sort of walk, walks into this sort of, you know, mainstream, very white, mask for mask culture where he's very mm. popular because he's this skinny kid who's well hung, you know, mm. and is a top. So um, you have the intersectionality there and that's something that um, really sort of comes from, yeah, my own story. I think that's what's so important to read as well, because that, you know, the idea that there is a, like, this is the, the difficult thing about kind of queer culture being grouped together, because it, it suggests a homogeneity of experience. Exactly. Which is completely nonsense. Yeah. 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 There's um, so sorry. many subsections to the, to, to any identity under any umbrella. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and actually, and also, what you want to see is a plurality, yeah. even within the subsections. Yeah. You know, when I was writing this brutal house, no one, no one was writing a novel about voguing, um, and I was really, you know, I was just really in the midst of it, and you know, I didn't, I had no idea what kind of um, climate the book would come out in. And then, as my book came out, someone wrote a novel about voguing the year before. <laughs> Um, Joseph Kassara's book, um, House of Impossible Beauties, which is amazing. It's really beautiful. And it's a different, it's a different take on voguing. It's closer to, it's far closer to Pose in terms of the sort of narrative of someone who comes into a voguing house, finds themselves, finds the community. It's a, it's a different kind of book. Um, and you can see, I can see from a, in a, within the great culture, in terms of, you know, book culture, people were a bit perplexed. There was two books. It was sort of like, well, isn't one voguing book enough? And it's like, actually, there should be 10 books about voguing. It's exactly. really, you know, I want a plurality of ideas and point of view and discourse and all that kind of stuff. Well, this is the thing I think about any supposed, you know, like I'm using air quotes because it's complex, but like minority experience in the culture is that it, it can interfere with a text just being a text, right? Where it gets pigeonholed. Mm. And it's actually, we've had a couple of questions come through and this relates really well to one of them. Some um, YouTube watcher, Alex, hello, Alex. Thanks for asking a question. Has asked, he says, he's curious to know if you feel you're marketed as gay authors and how that feels. And did you imagine that that would happen when you started writing? Um, do I feel marketed as a gay author? Um, I suppose I do, yeah. And I'm fine with that, actually. 
um, because I mean I've written a book that just isn't really sort of seen everywhere that is one of these sort of as you say Niven um, it's one of the plural it's, it's a plurality book like it's you know there are other gay novelists black gay novelists um, but I'm writing about sex work and religion and all of those things and other people are writing about other things and we all have our different spaces um, as we should. Um, Andrew Levy said, um, you know, if there are 500,000 black people, then there are 500,000 different ways of being black. Um, and I would say exactly the same about being queer. And so mm. um, there are a multiplicity of stories, you know, um, of experiences that um, are, are valid. And um, if it's beautiful writing, then it belongs. And Niven, what about you? How do you feel about that categorization? Well, I mean, I'm not, I'm not massively fussed either way. <laughs> I think, I mean, to be honest, I think from a, in, from a book point of view, my overwhelming feeling always has been that I'm marketed as a writer of colour, first and foremost. And I don't know how I feel about that, particularly within, within a wider kind of book sense. I think as much as it, um, as much as it can be enriching, it's also quite limiting. Mm. Um, so, you know, and, you know, I've written, you know, this is my fifth book and every book I write is completely different. And some books feel, um, I suppose, more queer than others, if that makes sense. Mm. So how people, how, you know, how my publishers go about, you know, pushing the book and, and the person who wrote the book varies from book to book, I guess. Um, but the over the overriding sense always is always has been not that I'm a novelist I'm a novelist of colour. Yeah, it's tricky. It's really tricky, especially because you know the publishing industry, as everyone involved with it knows, is still overwhelmingly white and still mm. overwhelmingly middle class in a way that is, you know, problematic as hell. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> you know, you're, well, you're, let's quickly. I've got, there's one more question I want to ask you from. YouTube, but before we do, you're both published by Dialogue Books, which is a, a, a an imprint that is doing a lot to change all of that, basically. Yeah, very much so. Um, which is absolutely bloody brilliant. And um, I guess, you know, I, I wanted to ask you how you feel about being part of that movement by being in the same publishing house and by that being a very clear kind of setting out, like even down to the point that at the back of your books, you have a, a list of all the people involved in publishing them. Mm. It's just completely like takes a grenade to the idea that that a book is produced by a single mind in a room, you know, which is again, so important because these things are so much more collaborative than the old establishment wants anyone to believe, I think half of the time. Um, but yeah, it, it, here's a moment to just give a big plug to, uh, to dialogue. It's <laughs> not it. difficult. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Shall I go? Um, yeah, you can. Yeah. <laughs> um, it can be a very, very, very scary thing. Um, trying to find an agent trying to find an editor, a publisher, um, bringing out a book, all of that can be extremely scary. Um, but my experience with Charmaine and the team at Dialogue Books has just been positive, positive, positive at every step. Um, just sort of being looked after 
being told that my publisher and my editor have has confidence in me um, even when I um, delivered a manuscript five months late and then retracted it three days later and said I'm really sorry but I have to write the whole thing in third person why <laughs> and then so having to delay the book like I just at no point did I feel like I was under any pressure to do anything other than the work that I needed to do and that I 100% have the support of, of my publisher and my team behind me and that has continued all the way through to today and I just have all every confidence in them and just being like one of the authors at Dialogue Books you know we meet up a lot don't we Niven like we have yeah. like, drinks we have dinners like we support each other um, I just don't know of another imprint like us um, no, for where sure. we are really sort of a team and we support each other and we're constantly growing Charmaine's finding so many brilliant authors all the time all the time and um, I just don't know of another imprint at the moment that's just being as disruptive as we are and putting so many um, amazing voices that five years ago just wouldn't have got gig um, yeah it's like listening to you it's like the flip from a scarcity mindset to an abundance mindset right yeah exactly. I mean and 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 what I find what I found very interesting is the um when you publish especially when when you publish for the first time it takes you a really long time to not only find a community of writers but feel part of the community of writers and um, you know, I've been published by several different houses and, you know, with my first book, literally it came out and I felt no connection mm. to, to the publishing world in a, in a lot of ways. You know, I did, I was on the circuit and I did stuff, but I didn't feel part of a community of writers within my own publisher, within, you know, meeting other writers. I felt really, really removed. It made, it really made, it was, it was weird. It made no difference that the book was out. It didn't really change how I felt of my, as myself as a writer within the community because I didn't find my people. It wasn't until, I, until my second book. And also, you know, I'm very old, so it was pre-social media. And then by the time my second book dropped, you know, there was MySpace and I started doing a lot more events and I started finding a community of writers. And so when I see what Charmaine has done and the whole team have done at Dialogue, not only building up a great, really varied, interesting, um, challenging list, but actually fostering a sense of community of writers who are uh, you know the great a great great deal of our first-time writers it's really powerful because you because I, I know what it was like to publish without that and I think actually having a community that you can fall back on who you can support who will support you in return is really really you know it's immeasurable and just having someone to work with who is just incredibly innovative and focused and coming up with new ideas like you know my book got published um on the 23rd of april right in the middle of um this pandemic um none of us knew that that was going to happen i was supposed to have a physical book launch um but when that sort of went out of the window like within days they come up with this whole new like okay so we're gonna have a, like a dialogue books lounge and we're going to sort of go on Instagram live and have chats with different authors every week and you're going to be part of it and that's going to work and it's going to be fine. And so I'm sort of logging in to watch other authors like yours, Niven, and I'm seeing other publishers like Fourth Estate and, you know, other publishers sort of logging in to watch us. Um, and it just goes to show that, you know, the innovation um, really sort of spreads a positive message around that, you know, it doesn't matter 
and initiatives like this as well, like what we're doing here um, um, for Minding with Wasafiri magazine, it just sort of keeps people in the conversation um, despite everything that's happening in the world. Mm. Um, so it just does give you a lot of confidence when you know that your publisher is really thinking about how to go forward. Yeah, I bet. Also for a, a career that can be in the creative process as solitary as a writer needs to be at times, you know, having that community is so important. And it seems um, it seems sad that other people aren't as on it, right? That other publishing houses aren't, as, aren't necessarily doing it in the same way. But, but, but also I think, you know, writers by nature are quite competitive. So you will, you know, you do see people, you know, you, you do get a sense of some writers just don't want to mix and don't want to really kind of mm. be part of a community. You know, I think, I think the digital space has definitely changed all that because you have access. So you are able to, you know, befriend writers that you like and, and build up relationships. So I think it's, it's less than it was, you know, when I was first publishing in the early noughties, where it was still very much an old school kind of mindset where, um, publishers really like writers to kind of stay in their box. You know, they would bring you out when they wanted to bring you out, um, which is fine. But then what it does is it, it just cuts you off from people. I thought I'd be published and I would be meeting loads of people. And I didn't really, not till my second book. Mm. Well, I'm glad it's changing. Yeah, um, you, you feel the change. I yeah, think. that's good. It's really encouraging. I mean, you, when you think about what the experiences of like young queer writers are going to be in, say, 10 years, and they'll mm. probably be very different from yours at the beginning at least Niven and maybe yeah. from you Paul like we'll see time will tell um I've got a couple more questions from people watching and so I think we'll go we've gone 45 minutes I think we can go another 10 minutes wow um, maybe we've got to give give the people something to uh, entertain them um so a question, there's no name on this one, but uh, a question asks, are there any authors you would like to do an event with that festival organizers wouldn't put you with because of the homogenizing of the queer experience? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I'm Maybe not sure. One to answer. Mm, I mean, there's tons. I think, I, think it's, I think when you go behind the curtain a bit for festivals a lot of it is how festivals are programmed is very much in terms of what is the easy fix so people don't really have a time you know and also because everything's done so far in advance people don't know your work they don't really think beyond what the selling point is and nine times out of ten for a writer of color you'll always be at events with other writers of color because it's just a very easy sell and it's just you know, job done, there you go, here's some new writers of colour. And, you know, I might have written about an orange and Paul might have written about a melon and we've got <laughs> nothing in common, but we've got to find something in common with each other for an hour. And sometimes <laughs> it can be illuminating and sometimes it can be a massive waste of time, let's face it. Um, you know, I wrote my, the book before this one was a book about art and I would have absolutely loved to have done festivals and talked with any writer who, who writes about art, anyone from, you know, Olivia Lang, Amy Saxel, tons of people. No one asked, no one, you know, suggested those things. Mm. It was easier just to put me with a group of, you know, other writers of colour. Mm. So that must be so frustrating. That must be really frustrating. It's 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 the reality of mm. of publishing. Um, it's the reality of publishing books. Yeah. You know, I think you know. But then the upshot is you take control and you do events that you want to do. So mm. you know. 
I'm very kind of sort of hands-on with how my books are promoted and I'm always thinking about the events that I want to do and making the most of writers that I know and pushing my book into into those kind of areas because if you literally wait for you know an arts council or a, or a regional festival person a harassed regional festival person who's got to fill up 50 slots to spend the time to actually curate something you'll be waiting a really long time so you have to do it yourself and again that is the history of queer art you know the only way queer art moved forward from you know protests or everything else was people had to do it themselves so that's the lesson. So we're waiting for your festival now, never. <laughs> I, would, I would love to do a festival. Absolutely love to do a festival. Someone wants to give us some money, we'll do it. <laughs> yeah, my vote. That would be amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then there's a question from Saskia here, which I think Niven, you touched on, but we can go back to it. A lot of, as she says, a lot of people may not know about the subjects you've discussed, voguing, etc. To what extent do you feel your books are educational? And I guess also for Paul, like that would apply to the Jehovah's Witness experience, which is, you know, one that's quite rarefied and probably something a lot of your readers don't have firsthand experience of. Um, definitely. Um, a lot of people only know about Jehovah's Witnesses in terms of, you know, maybe they know about not celebrating Christmas or birthdays. Um, maybe they, you know, some people might know about um, the blood issue where, um, witnesses are not allowed to um, ingest any blood if they're you know dying leaking out in the road they're not allowed to have a blood transfusion they, they will have to die um, beyond that the knowledge is very sort of minimal so it is interesting and I didn't like you never and I didn't want to sort of write the sort of remedial Jehovah's Witness novel because a, I don't really remember what it's like to be a Jehovah's Witness anymore. Yay! Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I just didn't think it would be of interest. I needed to pick something from Jess's life that was relevant to him telling the whole story um, as part of Rainbow Milk. Um, but also you look at sex work. That's also something that's, that's not a particularly well-known subject, especially coming from um, a black working class male uh, perspective, um, especially in the gay community, um, unless you're really familiar with certain very sort of like recherche corners of Pornhub, you're not aware of, <laughs> you know, the image of a young black man fucking an older white man. It's just not around, like you just don't see it. Um, so there are a lot of ways in which rainbow milk is sort of quite a new thing for people to digest. Um, but let's just hope that it's the first of many such novels where we're just really surprised at the sort of the individuality of, of people and storytellers. I think that also comes through so much in your book because, well, you know, sex is an experience that is like at once something that most human beings experience in a similar way and something that is completely different for everyone. And you, you know, when writers are approaching sex, they have that kind of burden of representation on them, right? Like how do you write orgasmic pleasure? How do you write sexual shame? How do you write these oh, yeah. <laughs> right that are so personal and yet so kind of unifying also in all of these different ways? And I think it's what I enjoyed in the sex scenes in Rainbow Milk is that they're very specific to this, as you say, very specific experience of being like a well-hung young black sex worker, which is not something I have experience of at the same time. <laughs> because you write them sensitively and beautifully, there's a point of connection for any human being who's ever had sex, even 
just with themselves. You know what I mean? Like that's. I mean, we're tapping into Jesse's. We're, we're basically the camera on Jesse's shoulder. You know, it's third person. It's written in third person, but we are really in, inside his head, pretty much. Um, and he, obviously, having been raised in this very sheltered environment, is now suddenly free. He's not even in the same city as his family or anybody who knows him. So he is absolutely free to go out there and go into Compton's on a Monday afternoon and pick up a guy and fuck him in the toilets, you know, and that's <laughs> his experience. And that's great. And we're sort of seeing that with him because he's experiencing it for the first time. So it's not, you know, we don't know that. We don't have the scaffold for that in our brains. Like we've just never seen that before. So we just have to sort of say it as it is rather than, yeah. you know, we're not writing sonnets about it like it's it's you know it's <laughs> Megan the Stallion saying you know I'm rich but I'm ratchet like it's mm. <laughs> it's really sort of like it's out there it's plain language it's like my dick went inside him that's it that's all you can really say um once we do have the scaffold and we have the sort of bank of images in our minds so that we don't necessarily have to think of sex as being an act that you know if you if you are um a straight um, white male writer and you're writing a sex scene, you can just go off in any kind of direction because people already know what it's going to look like. Um, but if so it's just- often ends up in some very bad places. Come well, on, let's quite. be real. Like... <laughs> Most of the time. Most straight of white time. men writing sex, not my favorite. <laughs> and I didn't want to write, I didn't want to win the bad sex award. No. So like, I just thought, you know, if I just make this as plain as possible, then, like no one can accuse me of being weird. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess I, I, I think we probably need to wrap up in about five minutes. I feel like we could go on for forever. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you guys. Um, I guess my last question for both of you is how do you feel about your books having a, a position in a kind of queer canon or a canon of queer experience of the kind of literature that you know you guys both experience and, and that works its way into your books Niven let's start with you um I welcome it I, I'm I, yeah put it in there put it on a pedestal <laughs> light it well <laughs> yeah I mean you know you know being a queer writer being a queer writer of color that in, in itself is a political act finishing and finishing a book and actually getting it published and, and and in the world physically as an object is you know nine times out of ten for writers of color is through sheer force of will so to have a book that kind of penetrates through um the mass of books that are published every year i mean you know just the number is just madly depressing and you just, you know to penetrate through that and to have some kind of presence within the culture in the sense that it might have, a, you know, some kind of longevity within the culture beyond publishing, the publishing cycle is completely amazing. So, yeah, it's the ultimate, for me, it's kind of the ultimate compliment. The idea, You know, my preoccupation is just to keep writing novels and, and to create a body of work. And the idea that some of those novels will find their way within a canon that might be remembered whether it's a year or five years or even longer than that is massively flattering. And it's, you know, it's what you really wish for as a writer. What about you, Paul? Do you feel the same way? 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. I'm not going to turn down the opportunity to be part of the canon. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, like, or, like Audre Lord says about, you know, doing your work, like I, you know, representation is important. Mm. Um, and every new generation needs to learn apparently afresh black history, especially black British history, queer history, queer people of color history, because it just gets swept under the carpet and forgotten every generation. Um, so there is always a responsibility to, to represent, but also um, like we've already said, we're not a monolith. Um, there are so many sort of intersections at which each of us writes as queer people of color. Uh, because we all come from different places. We're all like the Vogue houses in your book, Niven. We all come from different walks of life to find our chosen families. We all have a different story to tell. We've all come from families that have taffed us out, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so we all deserve the opportunity to have a voice. And I just really hope that um, young people of color, young queer people of color, young queer people of all backgrounds, young people of all backgrounds can look at my book, look Niven's book and see something of themselves. And even if they have to live a life that doesn't sort of absolutely go to plan, um, they know that they can use writing as a way to, um, yeah, to explain things to themselves, to examine their creativity and to, to be able to tell a story because we need to hear those stories. You know, people say that the novel is dead. No, it's not. It ain't dead. No, it's not. It ain't dead. It's an old white guy who said the novel was dead. <laughs> and they've been saying that since And that's because he wanted to go off and write a wine book instead. Right. <laughs> exactly. They said that, like, since day, and then Proust came along and, you know, yeah. showed the novel. I don't think the novel's collapse. ever going to die. We love stories too much, exactly. you know? Yeah, we really Dude. love stories too much. Yeah. Certain stories and certain intersections that can only really be examined in the space that a novel provides because yeah. it's about characters. It's about, you know, we all live lives. None of us lives in a, in a box to ourselves, even though it might resemble one at the moment. Um, but right. we're all part of, exactly, we're all part of a big wide world. We're all part of um, something much bigger than ourselves. We're all having conversations all over the world. So, um, there, there are just innumerable opportunities to write about different relationships and different intersections. Um, and yeah, I'm just looking forward to, to seeing more interesting and amazing unique stories coming through. That was Paul Menders, Niven Govinden and their host Octavia Bright speaking together for the Bookbound 2020 Festival. Their chat was going to take place in an independent bookshop originally, that's Pages in Hackney, but coronavirus got in the way. Boo! On the plus side, we got to have them instead. Anyway, all that is to say, support your local independent bookshops people. You know you love them and they love you. And what would this world be like without them? Oh, it'd just be too, too depressing. Next time on the Bookbound podcast, a conversation about relocation with a poet Jennifer Wong and author Sonia Kamal. If you've enjoyed this episode today, write it on a t-shirt, uh, create a banner, uh, make some bunting, 
or or just subscribe subscribe and rate us and review us and all that lovely stuff the book fan podcast team is me that's georgie cod working with claire reed poor claire she has to put up with so much from me oh and felicity quick and beatrice bazell patient women all our theme tune is wonder under by the glad rags which is very kindly donated through the free music archive i'm off now but well if you want to hear more download another episode go on you know you want to